Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Memes, the Guardian podcast that delights in scrabbling merrily around in the increasingly rotten and foul-smelling refuse bin of Brexit in search of something, just about anything, in fact, that makes even the tiniest bit of sense, so you don't have to. I'm John Henley, and in this episode, hey, it's 2019. That means we can no longer say Britain is due to leave the EU at the end of March next year, because it's no longer true. Britain is due to leave the EU at the end of March this year. In other words, depending on when you listen to this, in somewhat less than three months' time. Other than that, though, nothing much has changed since our last episode. Theresa May's deal, the withdrawal agreement, and especially its controversial backstop arrangement to avoid a hard border across the island of Ireland, is still no closer to winning the support of MPs. And despite the Prime Minister's best efforts over the Christmas break, EU leaders are still adamant that the talks are over and the text on the table cannot be altered in any significant way. But we are undeniably entering the end game, and the options are beginning to crystallise. The Commons vote on the withdrawal agreement, which was delayed from late December, is now due to be held on Tuesday the 15th, we are promised. Nobody serious seems to think the government can win it, so as the clock keeps ticking down to the 29th of March, and unless something really unforeseen happens, the UK's exit from the EU, where might the Prime Minister and her deal go from here, and what might the next few weeks hold in store? With me to address what are arguably the most important questions to be asked of British politics in the past half century or so, so no pressure anybody, are Simon Usherwood, reader in politics at the University of Surrey and deputy director of the UK in a Changing Europe programme, Sonia Soda, the Observer's chief leader writer, and Jennifer Rankin, Brussels correspondent extraordinaire at The Guardian. Welcome to all of you. Good luck. Uh, I won't be holding any of you to your predictions. (laughs) Um, let's just get the easiest bit out of the way first, shall we? Assuming that nothing much changes between now and Tuesday the 15th, that's next Tuesday, there's no realistic possibility of the government winning the vote, is there, Sonia? No, predictions are a fool's game in this current political climate, but one prediction I'm confident and happy to make is that she will lose the vote on her deal on the 15th. Simon? I'll go along with that. I don't, I, there's, can, again, you, can you just sort of outline the arithmetic a little bit, the parliamentary arithmetic on it? The basic issue is that the opposition parties have lined up to say that they will oppose this uh, meaningful vote. Uh, and so in that context, any defections from the government coalition compromise the ability to get it over the line. So we know the DUP are intensely unhappy about the meaningful vote, the backstop 
most uh, aspects of this. Uh, we also know that we've got a block of Tory backbenchers who are also almost certainly, well, they are going to vote mm. against it. They've how, said as how much. How many roughly do we... It depends on the, the flavour of the week. But I think if we take the, the view that anyone who voted against Theresa May before Christmas yes. uh, and, in, and the, in the confidence yeah. uh, motion is going to vote against her. So that's over 100. And that's a really bad defeat for her. So, you know, I think that, that points to the lack of uh, scope for number 10 to kind of buy people off, soften the blow. So it's going to, it's going to, like to be a big defeat. OK, well, that's what I was going to come on to next. Uh, I mean, assuming that the government is defeated then, which I think hopefully we can, what happens next may well depend at least partly on how heavily it loses, uh, as Simon just suggested. So, Sonia, could you just explain a little bit what would be the difference for the government? I mean, not necessarily in pure sort of Brexit terms, but it's sim- simply in terms of, you know, its authority and the capacity to impose its will on Parliament. What would be the difference between a defeat by, say, I, I don't know, fewer than 100 votes and a defeat by many more than 100 votes? Sure. Well, presentationally, there'd be a very big difference, I think, because obviously if the government loses by more than 100 votes, that's a really, really historic defeat. And it also makes it look increasingly unlikely that she will be able to get her deal through at some point. So the headlines will be written very differently if she loses by, say, 110 votes compared to, say, 60 votes, which would be seen as a sort of much more manageable response respectable defeat, Mm. I suppose. But the difference isn't just presentational. I think there will be a real impact as well, because number 10's tactics very clearly are to uh, create, you know, make the the, the vote on her deal as last minute as possible. So to create the impression amongst MPs that the only choice left open to them is between her deal and and no deal. And number 10 knows that that is the best way of getting MPs to back her deal. Now, the problem is, is so if she has you know, a fairly modest defeat, mm. say 50 to 60 MPs, MPs will start to think, hmm, maybe there is a head of steam building around this. Maybe the temperature is shifting in Parliament. Maybe if I'm one of a very small number of MPs who vote, you know, who cause a defeat on her deal the mm. second time or the third time round, perhaps the blame will stop with me. And that is very much what number 10 will be hoping that's what they're sort of you know go, go trying to goad MPs into thinking now if the scale of the defeat is big as many people think it will be you know MPs sort of feel well there's just you know, safety no in numbers exactly yeah. no conceivable majority for this uh, whatsoever so I think the size of the defeat will very much materially affect the chances of the deal getting through at a later stage um, unfortunately for number 10 though because this idea of a, a second vote possibly a third vote has become so bedded in now you know particularly with the month-long mm. delay that we've seen with the you know from when the vote was originally, originally meant to be held. Yeah. People have priced that in. You know, this is sort of MPs sort of look at this and they don't see this as crunch time. They don't see this as a big the, the big vote. It's sort of an indicator. Mm. And you know, there's there's still two months left. It's not long, but there's still just over two months left. So so we could change course. So I think the scale, there's n- little incentive at the moment for MPs to weigh in behind it. Yeah. And I think that is what number ten are really contending with this week. That's interesting. Well, okay, then let's let's try and sketch out a few scenarios that might follow follow on from one of those two possibilities then. First off, a government defeat, but what 
you might call in, in you know as, as you were just describing a slightly more manageable defeat you know considerably less than a hundred um, then I guess the first course of action that would be open to Theresa May then would basically be to kind of redouble her efforts to wring some sort of concession especially on the backstop from from the EU so Jennifer over to you now there's been an awful lot of talk around about the EU maybe being able to budge a little bit but only after uh, May loses at least one vote in the Commons on the grounds I, I imagine that the EU similarly to the government will be thinking you know um, we don't want to give too much too early you know because then the the, 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 the Eurosceptics and the and the ERG and everybody will simply just come back and ask for for yet more so what do you think May might come looking for again you know assuming that she loses by a you know a manageable amount and how likely is the EU to be able to come up with it well, one thing we, we do know for sure is that there's not going to be any compromise on, on the backstop, I think, and that we, we don't know exactly what May will be looking for, but we do know what many of her supporters want, and that's to, to scrap the backstop altogether, this insurance plan that would keep the whole UK in a customs union that that so many backbenches absolutely loathe. Um, and we hear it again and again from the EU, that's not just that's just not going to happen. But what uh, what could be possible is some kind of further reassurance, assurance to um, to really stress that the EU will be doing its best in order to get this trade agreement done by the end of 2020, which is largely what has been said already. So I think there's a, there's a degree of scepticism in Brussels that even this would be a, a gambit that would have any success in helping. But I think there, there is a sense of, uh, of the EU wanting to see what will happen with the vote. If you say that they see there's always another phase, that's the view in Brussels, and, and they hope she will win, but they're waiting to see what, what might need to be done if, if she doesn't. But I think there are some question marks as to whether Theresa May could get what she seems to want now, which is some way to avoid the backstop through the back door, which is to get some kind of legally binding target to have the, the future trade agreement done and dusted by the end of 2021. Uh, and that seems like a, still a very hard ask for the EU. They're saying that that's really going to be asking the impossible, committing the EU to something when the UK itself doesn't really know what it wants. So I, there's still a lot of scepticism about what the UK is asking for. But I think it's pretty clear there's not going to be, there's no appetite for rewriting the withdrawal agreement or, or compromising yeah. on the backstop. Yeah. And what are this, this exchange of letters that we've hear, been hearing about over the past couple of days? What would the, I mean, this would be before the first vote, obviously, next week. But what would, what would that be about? So the exchange of letters is being discussed as we speak, but it's really not clear what it may result in. And while it seems that the EU side is happy to add to its promise that there will be a free trade agreement by the end of 2020, they don't want to go as far as the government would like them to go, which is some kind of legally binding pledge that um, you would have this trade deal in, in place by the end of 2021. So that means you would use the backstop or you would only extend the transition period once. So in a way, it's, it's, it's a means to to scrap the backstop through uh, the, through the back door, but the EU doesn't like this, mostly because they don't have any faith in it as, as, a, as an option. They think the UK still doesn't really know what it wants uh, from the future trade agreement after all this time, uh, and therefore asking the EU to sign up to some kind of legally binding target to agree that future relationship seems a, a tall order and, and not at all realistic and not done in good faith from, from the EU's point of view. Okay, Simon, uh, from the UK perspective, 
can, you know, even assuming we get this exchange of letters and we don't, as Jennifer was saying, it's not clear how much that really very, very unclear that the EU can 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 give certainly what the government might be really looking for, which is a you know some kind of guarantee. But it, assuming we get some relatively minor concessions on, particularly I guess on the political declaration, is that ever going to be enough for the DUP and the and the Tory hardliners in the in the ERG? And and secondary to that, if the uh, the withdrawal agreement uh, vote, it, the government loses it, how might the cabinet? respond to that because the, the cabinet is, is very divided obviously in itself i, I think that there's uncertainty there's lots of uncertainty mm. this week uh clearly uh there's uncertainty about how much backbench tory opposition is ideological and visceral and will never change mm. and that no concession will uh, make any difference, will make any difference. Mm. and how much there is a more rational kind of calculation process going on as sonia was suggesting that you know perhaps there's a fear of a no deal and what that might involve and that this looks like the least worst alternative and so they use the concession as a way of saying well this has assuaged my fears and that of my constituency Mm. uh, and I want to now change my vote and and move on that really hasn't been played out yet and I think it won't be played out until we have the vote and we know quite what the situation is yeah 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 yeah. okay um and the cabinet Imagine there's a quite a heavy defeat. Would there be a, a, a mass cabinet walkout, for example? Or? I think we've, we, we're running out of people to walk out of the cabinet on this <laughs> issue. I mean, we, you know, we've had waves of that. And I think that, that that's going to be another issue, that those who had strong opposition to this text had an opportunity to leave. Some did. David Davis, Boris Johnson. To now say, I still don't like this, looks uh, problematic because you haven't really got senior figures saying that we're here to be on the inside and try and change it. I mean, Michael Gove maybe is a, a, a bit of a bellwether on that front. But I think the, the, the cabinet has largely tied its, its colours to the mast on this one and it serves nothing to, to be walking out at this stage. So I think it's unlikely. Okay. Um, Sonia, now what about the, you know, the, something, something we haven't discussed up until now is that would be the opposition, Labour, particularly where, what role might Labour play in all of this? Now, I mean, there was a big poll firstly at the weekend that suggested that the Observer ran, obviously, that, you know, that, that, that suggested that Labour would really, would literally hemorrhage support if, if it enables Brexit, basically. Um, so it could table a vote of no confidence, couldn't it? But would it be able to win it? Could, or could it alternatively force some kind of change of tack? Uh, from the government towards the the Labour Brexit strategy, which, for the sake of simplicity, you might say, sort of, it could basically be summed up as a, a permanent customs union. Sounds like you've union. got a lot more clarity yeah. on that than the rest of us, John. <laughs> Most of us are less scratching uh, our heads as to yes. what Labour's Brexit policy is. Yeah, yeah. a terrible oversimplification, yeah. but you know. But it is true that may. I mean, might there be, for example, be a majority in the Commons for the idea of a a permanent customs union, for example? Possibly. So just to sort of take a step back from it, I think Labour are really important to this because I don't think... So so what Labour chooses to do as a party, whether it chooses to whip um, opposition to May's deal, whether it chooses to abstain, what the small handful of Tory uh, Labour rebels, rather, Mm. who might... for 
that might vote for May's deal do. This is all incredibly important because I don't think Theresa May is going to deliver her deal or get her deal through by holding together her existing coalition of the DUP and Tory backbench, you know, very strong Eurosceptics. So Labour's role is key in all this. What Labour has been trying to do, and some would say it's been a very successful political strategy thus far, is to sort of hold together its coalition of Leave-supporting voters and Remain-supporting voters and essentially fudge it in much the same Mm. way that Theresa May has spent the last sort of two years since the referendum uh, fudging Brexit. So, you know, Labour's official position is we want a general election, elect us, we will go to Europe Mm. and deliver a much better Brexit deal (laughs) that enables Britain to leave the EU, not to be part of freedom of movement, but get all the exact same benefits of being uh, a member of the European Union. So it's a unicorn position, a complete fudge. Now it's hold on to it for, held on to it for this long. Mm. I think what's interesting about the polling that we ran in the Observer over the weekend, it's starting to suggest that for electoral reasons, it might be in Labour's interest. You know, Labour can't have this fudge forever. It can't just sort of have this fudge on a never-ending mm. basis. And on another level, if May's strategy is very much making this about deal or no deal. Mm. Labour kind of have to move before she does because if they just do nothing, if they just keep their current position, they will basically kind of hand her a victory because in the sense that it will be a choice between deal or no No deal. deal. And then I think in that situation, you know, you could potentially maybe see Labour abstaining. There's been some talk of that, which may see her deal get through, but Labour be able to be, well, we didn't support this. But I think there probably are uh, the the number of Labour MPs who would back her deal in a May's deal versus no deal Mm. scenario, if they genuinely thought that what it was, the number of Labour MPs that would back this would go up. So I think there's a really important question, which is what does the Labour leadership do? When does it move? When does Um, it jump? When does it jump? And that is what we're seeing play out I think internally within Labour at the moment and the problem is is that around Jeremy Corbyn I think there are some people there are people on both sides of this question so there are people who sort of would argue this is just Theresa May's problem it's not in Labour's interest to move first let her sort this out Mm. there will absolutely be a mess afterwards the Tories will be held accountable and Labour will ride into a government Um, and there are others who are saying this is just not in the national interest Mm. and it's not in the interest of people who vote Labour and even if it were to do us a bit of electoral damage we need to we need to keep those people in mind Uh, so Labour is just as divided as the Conservatives along different lines but those divisions are still there so it's hard to know exactly how the chips are going to fall I very much hope that we see Labour move to a constructive position over the next two to three weeks. You know, the Observer has always argued very very strongly in favour of a referendum on May's deal. It must be put to the people versus the status quo. And that's where we, as a paper, would really like to see Labour move to. Simon, you wanted to come It's worth stressing as well that you mentioned the motion of no confidence. That's unlike that's not going to work no because the dup and tory backbenchers have said we dislike right. brexit yeah. but we yeah. we, we, we yeah. also yeah. Like in government yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's not going to so the most productive avenue for labor is going to be amendments so not forcing the systemic issue of whether the government stands or falls because that won't work but if you can yeah. go down the route of amendments try and peel off uh soft tory mm. uh, rebels that that way you could build a majority potentially which might then move mm. policy but again 
the problem remains what is the policy that you're trying to push? Yeah. And, and I think exactly. what's interesting at some is point that they the have leader- to decide. Don't yeah, they? yeah, I think that's right. And I think what's interesting is that the leadership at the moment is not coming from the Labour leadership. It's mm. coming from significant Labour backbenchers like Yvette Cooper, for mm. example, who um, you know this week is putting an amendment to the finance mm. bill around No Deal, and that is great. And as you say, that might peel off some soft Tories. But the problem is, is that at the end of the day, the way that Parliament works, you need the whipping behind a positive option. It's very hard to see how two backbenchers, a Tory backbencher and a Labour backbencher could ever create enough momentum in terms of the parliamentary agenda Mm. around an option like you know, like Norway or a yeah, second referendum, yeah. for example. So that is a really tricky thing about this. It requires a political party, party to, move to actually behind make it. a decision yes. and back it. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's move on now and and look at how things might play out in the event of a of a much heavier defeat for the government next week, um, or. Uh, you know, if, if May decides that one of these options might in any case be her least worst bet. Um, or I suppose equally in the event of a, of a second defeat, you know, if, if she comes back with something and, and, that, is, and that is also uh, defeated. So the first possibility then, I suppose, would be a, the possibility of a second referendum, um, which actually, I mean, some pretty serious people, um, you know, Mujtaba Rahman of the Eurasia Group, Charles Grant uh, of the Centre uh, for European Reform and so on, you know, they're, they're now actually touting a second vote as marginally the most likely outcome now. Now, Jennifer, a second vote or indeed, I suppose, a, a, an, a, an election, uh, a new election, both of those would require the two-year Article 50 timetable to be extended. Um, and that's really beginning to look quite a lot more possible now. The government has said, obviously, that it has no intention of asking for it, but there was a minister who broke the ranks, uh, broke ranks just this week um, and said it could be on the cards. Uh, uh, plenty of, uh, of newspapers are reporting that the government's sort of putting out feelers in the direction of extending Article 50. What's the, could you just explain to us what's the exact procedure and, and would the EU27 agree uh, to an extension for that kind of reason? In other words, for a second referendum. Well, before getting to the procedure, I just wanted to say that I'm actually not hearing that there, there has been any request by the government or any feeders oh, really? even on extending Article 50, just to add to the complexity of the okay. picture. And in fact, the, the EU sources that I'm talking to, they they feel that the, the government is even in, in denial about this when, when they look at the, the, the sheer volume of, of, of business that has to go through Parliament, even, even if this meaningful vote uh, ever passes. So, uh, so I'm not, I'm not uh, picking Completely up that convinced there is a that. serious okay. request for extension going on. But nonetheless, of course, people are asking the question. We're all asking the question because uh, the time is running out and, and we're getting very close to the deadline now. So inevitably, we are beginning to, to dust off the Article 50 procedure once again. And, and that procedure really is quite simple. And first of all, the UK has to ask for an extension. And that's the most important thing of all, perhaps, or... or at least as important as the fact that then the EU27 has to agree unanimously to to agree to that. So just thinking on how EU summits work, you could imagine my own guesstimate is that you'd need a sort of 10-day process to do that, of 10 days of sort of leading up to uh, to a summit of, of EU the Sherpas doing this, their Because I think it would be inconceivable yeah. that you wouldn't have this done 
such a momentous decision simply by any kind of other procedure. I think it would have to really come from EU leaders, although to stress no one in Brussels is actually discussing this scenario at all because we go back in the sort of very circular way to the fact that the UK has not requested Article 50 and therefore there's no need to discuss it. And that also sort of is worth raising the other the other problem as well that if the UK were to ask for an extension say for another referendum or a general election then that's it you're getting into a, a process that would take several months that would take you beyond the European elections and and as we've discussed on this podcast before one that also uh, is a big hurdle for any extension to article 50 because the EU has been adamant that the UK must have left by the time of the European elections which are at the end of May Although there are maybe the beginnings of some discussion as well. Could you have some sort of flexibility around this? Could you have British MEPs continue retaining their seats? So even perhaps retaining the prospect of Nigel Farage and, uh, and UKIP sitting in the, in the European Parliament for a bit longer. So these conversations in, in a very informal way are, are beginning to happen. But there is a, it, it's, not an, it's not a straightforward process, although perhaps compared to, to the rest of, of Brexit, it would certainly be a, I think for for some, a sort of a, obviously a more desirable option than than crashing out of the EU. Yeah, I mean that's uh, the real thing. I mean, would there, would, I mean, would there would there be sort of goodwill towards it as a, a, a as an idea if if it really came to it? I, th- I think so because it, well, the EU doesn't want to push the UK out of the door, especially if if there were to be a second referendum. I, I can't imagine that the EU would would then would insist on on not allowing that process to take place and and, allow, and insisting on the UK leaving. But but the European elections does throw up a real problem a real of timing and procedure, yeah. and that would need to be resolved. OK. Simon, let's just assume for a moment then, although as Jennifer was saying, it does look at, for, at, the, at the very least problematic, that the EU was willing to grant an extension to Article 50. Can you see May heading down the route of a second referendum ever? I mean, she's been so adamantly opposed to it ever since the first referendum she has again there's this uh dilemma about Theresa may who vociferously says she doesn't want to do something and then then does it at the moment i still think a second referendum looks very unlikely uh from Theresa may's perspective her track record on brexit has been to keep decision making as tight as possible so even giving parliament a role that uh, legal battles that we saw with Gina Miller mm. through 2016, 2017, mm. you know, that's, you know, that's for Parliament, you know, to then say, oh, well, I'm willingly going to pursue an, uh, a course of giving everybody a vote yeah. uh, doesn't really look uh, that uh, credible as an option. And I think also because it comes with a lot of uncertainty. Remember the last two nationwide votes we've had, mm. the 2016 general election, 2017 uh, the referendum and, and then the general election, yes, actually yes. the 2015 general yeah, election yeah, as well. Exactly, yeah. All of them came up with results that weren't expected Nobody by their really authors. So yeah. uh, to do it in the expectation that you will get your preferred outcome uh, achieved and again parliament will have a say about what the question is. So even if she says the question is my deal or no deal parliament can add in remain or it can take away options so she can't even control the question let alone the outcome so i think for all of those kind of things the the uncertainty that comes with it 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 doesn't really rub the right way with 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 her and you know kind of going back to an earlier part of this even with a heavy defeat uh Theresa May is not going to be the kind of person who's going to resign yes, there and if then. If we know you know, anything of her, that she, we know that exactly. She, so she'll want she, to stay. She wants to stay. She wants to stay and see this through, yeah. even if it's in a, a badly hold uh, ship of state. Yeah, so yeah. 
for, for those reasons, I think uh, it's unlikely. We'll have to remember. Yeah, Sonia, I, so I, I, I do agree with that when you consider Theresa May's character, the fact that she's, you know, pretty inflexible once she goes down the road. I mean, we know she's sort of switched in terms of the general election and a couple of other big things, but it's quite, she's not a risk taker. And, and I think the general election put her off that she lost, you know, back in 2017 or rather didn't get a majority in when she was expecting a bigger majority. I think that has really put her off taking risks even more. The only thing that makes me think, well, is there a possibility that she could pivot? And I think actually other politicians who are more risk-taking would pivot to a second referendum. If approaching towards the end of March, it becomes clear you're not going to get your deal through. If you were to say to the EU, give me the time, I'll hold a referendum, and you took your deal to the country against the status quo. And if you were able to win that referendum well, people would sort of say afterwards, you know, weren't weren't they some sort of kind of political genius to find a way through this yeah. morass and perhaps actually that could secure her her you know median term future as prime minister which at the moment is looking incredibly shaky she's not that type of politician but and you know this is a thing that i just keep coming back to this is all a game of chicken who's going to blink first can she get mp's behind a deal you know when it's a choice between her deal versus no deal if she can't and it looks like we might crash out. What would she do in those circumstances? Would she just be like, right, I'm prime minister, of, I'm going to be the prime minister that, that steers us through no deal? Or does she at some point think this is, you know, despite all the rubbish she said in the past about, you know, no deal being better than a bad deal, she doesn't believe that. She knows it's not in the national interest. You know, would she shepherd us through that or would she do something completely unexpected like go to the country in a referendum it's i think i think it's unlikely i agree with simon but i think we can't 100 percent rule it out rule altogether. It we are in such uncharted yeah, territory yeah, yeah, yeah. but this is one of these questions that hovers around all of these options is that how much is the government going to be relying on opposition support to get this through you would yes. imagine that the bulk of the votes for a second referendum are going to come from opposition parties particular uh, Labour and the Lib Dems, you know, is that a look that Theresa May wants yes. to do? And again, th- there's this whole issue around the whole of Brexit, which is so often it's framed in terms of party politics, domestic politics, rather than thinking about, you know, what we're trying to do here. Yeah. And so uh, those issues of, uh, you know, party politics, I think really do come to fore and they, they constrain, you know, and we also have to remember that Jeremy Corbyn might not want to be a out there campaigning for a referendum for yeah. talking about yeah, the EU, which he yeah. doesn't seem he doesn't to like doing. Like either. Yes. Okay. Um, let's move on. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to be cruel enough to ask to predict the outcome of a possible second <laughs> referendum. But let's look at the next possibility, which pr- probably. You know, you would sit in on the rankings of probability might be this Norway plus arrangement that Parliament might simply vote for that alongside again, presumably um, maybe a, a less lengthy Article 50 extension, some kind of ultra soft single market customs union kind of deal of the kind that's backed by quite a few parliamentarians, including Labour's Stephen Kinnock. Jennifer, again, for, is that a runner from the EU's point of view? I mean, would, would, if, if the British Parliament was to express its will uh, in the form of a Norway plus deal, would that be entertained by the EU27? Oh, absolutely. The EU has never been prescriptive about 
the variety of, of Brexit that um, it would like the, EU, the UK to take. And it even has this evolution clause in written down in, in an in old guideline stating that if the UK changes its position, then the EU can evolve too and, uh, and, and can accept that new reality or can at least embark on negotiations about that new reality. And the interesting thing to say about Norway Plus, I think, from the EU's point of view, is that there's nothing in the draft withdrawal agreement and the political declaration today that hinders Norway Plus in any way. So if, if, if in some alternative reality MPs voted tomorrow for Norway Plus, you wouldn't need to change a comma in the withdrawal agreement or the political declaration. You could simply go ahead on that basis. But nonetheless, I mean, I think everyone would would agree that you you need some kind of political move, some kind of political statement from the EU in in response or to help the UK reach that decision if indeed that was the course that MPs decided they they wanted to pursue. So I think that the EU would be open to doing this. It's another question, of course, whether whether Norway would be open to, to doing it because we've heard sort of a signal. We've that, been happily from taking Norway's name in vain. For exactly, these. exactly, and, and we've had signals from Norway all along that they're sort of less than thrilled about the idea of having the, the UK suddenly joining in in the club. Um, so the the EU, I think, could get on board. Although it has to be said, they remain officials remain very sceptical about whether the UK would ever really go down this route. And it's just interesting to note that we're recording this on the day that um, uh, that Nikki Morgan, the influential Conservative uh, MP, has written an article in the Financial Times calling for uh, a Norway plus model. And the way she sort of sells it is that the UK could be a, a rule shaper. So not never a rule taker, but a rule shaper and 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 could play its part in in really shaping the EU's single market rules. Um, but that's, of course, not how EU officials see how the Norway relationship works at all. I mean, you could say, of course, there's a bit of um, institutional bias, that, but for anyone in the EU machinery, they're always, of course, going to see EU membership as, as preferable to simply being in EFTA or the European Economic Area because the way it's seen in the EU is you're just simply accepting all those rules with very little say in them at all. And yes, of course, Norway and uh, the other countries don't have to adopt these these rules immediately, but we've already had signals from EU officials that they wouldn't be so comfortable with uh, with the UK being allowed to get away with that system where there could simply be a delay in, a, in adopting these kind of rules. So the Norway plus option wouldn't look exactly the same as it does for Norway. There would be, have to be, a, I think, a special UK variety crafted, and that might be a bit less comfortable than some of the supporters of, new, of Norway Plus are, are imagining at the moment. OK, uh, just quite briefly, um, Simon and, and then Sonia, what's the likelihood of, of Norway Plus in, in sort of parliamentary terms and government terms? It's a possibility, but again, it's not something that has a clear majority in Parliament. The, the really crucial point, though, and again, it's something that's going to come through in the next week, is that that's about the future relationship. The withdrawal agreement Mm. isn't about the future relationship. It's Mm. about ending EU membership of the UK. So it's about resolving liabilities on the backstop, on money, citizens' rights. Whatever model you want, the EU is prepared to have a discussion about that. And, you know, that's why the political declaration is as vague as it is. But... Uh, you still have to sort the, out the, the liabilities. And so that is going to be, I think, yeah. that, uh, that's an oddity from number 10 that they haven't yeah. said this. So, you know, you can have whatever future you like. You can have an argument about it in April, but we just need to sort... Just vote for the deal. <laughs> vote vote yeah. for the deal yeah. because yeah. the deal is just about 
ending membership. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I think that mechanism thing. actually, uh, the, the fact that we have this two-step mechanism, which is we must leave mm. and then we determine then our we future arrangement future. afterwards, that actually I think makes um, sort of MPs backing the deal in the hope that it will lead to Norway plus perhaps a bit less likely because, and people have always talked about the withdrawal agreement as you know, a bit of a blank check. We don't, you know, you could have a political change in direction. Mm. You could have a new Tory prime minister. And you, it's very hard to see how MPs tie future governments yeah. to going down the Norway plus route once we've actually left. And it's kind of, you know, that's what's sort of tricky about this mechanism that we agreed with the EU, which is you leave before you know what the future relationship's yeah. going to look like. And actually, from a democratic perspective, that's quite tricky, tricky in some one ways. To handle. Yeah, yeah. OK, um, we're slightly beginning to run out of time. Let's move on uh, swiftly, because uh, another possibility, a, a very real possibility, obviously, is that the deal, May's deal, or some sort of slightly revised version of it might survive. I mean, you know, mm. but because, as you were saying, Sonia, at the beginning, of the of the podcast because of the sort of unbelievably tight timescale all the business that has to be got through she probably only has to keep it alive uh, and sort of see off all the other options for about six weeks or so you know and then she really can mm-hmm. uh, go to parliament and say basically you know that, that this is this is the last deal standing as mm-hmm. it were uh, between britain and a and a, and a no yeah. deal brexit is that going to happen I think it could happen. Yeah. And I think people are increasingly coming around to this view. And I think a lot of it depends on what Labour does, actually, over the next kind of four weeks. But I think if Labour doesn't move and there is no majority for anything else and she hangs on for the next six weeks, I think you will see enough opposition MPs breaking away and supporting the deal and saying, right, we will sort out what the future looks like once you got out but we absolutely we have to go Get for this out. because yeah. the only other option is no deal and it is just so it, you know it might be in our political interest to vote for that but it is so going to be so catastrophic for our constituents that we cannot in good conscience vote against this deal i think that's that is where you start to get into the territory of, of, of yeah. may getting the deal yeah. through it's the same it's it's not it's if it happens which I still think is the most likely outcome. Yeah, it it will happen not because there's a sudden outburst of euphoria. As, oh, this is the most amazing text ever. It's because it's the least worst most option. Of, yeah. And yeah. the UK, I think, hasn't really accepted that there are no cost free options in this. That whatever path they take, there are going to have to be trade offs, and this is going to be uh, a crunch point for that. Jennifer, that would be without any. Uh, uh, significant concessions from the EU. I mean, the EU is not going to come up with sort of a last-minute offer that cuts across, uh, you know, the, the, the text of the withdrawal agreement, is it? No, and I, I think it would be so damaging, so destructive for EU unity if suddenly at the last minute they sort of threw the Irish under the proverbial bus despite so many promises that they would uphold the backstop. I think it would really damage trust among and between the EU 27 and it would, it would make it quite... It will make it difficult to, to to continue the Brexit negotiations and the future relationship and, and maintain the unity that the EU is, has grown to, to prize over this whole process. And, and secondly, the EU hates uh, renegotiating treaties, so they always look to, to repackage an agreement in, slightly, in a slightly new way, but not to renegotiate it. OK. Right. Final option, very briefly, if we can, because we have to address it, the dreaded no deal, you know, and all the sort of economic and logistical chaos that would come with it, which we've discussed 
discussed many times on this podcast. Now, many people see this as the least likely outcome, essentially because they believe that Parliament will, is always going to find a way to avert it. But plenty, as we've seen, plenty of countries and companies are upping their planning for it, and some are even enacting contingency plans already. Um, just a quick sort of uh, tour de table, as it were. How is a no deal possible, Simon? It's the default option. And <laughs> I know that's been, you're hearing that more from politicians, but it, it's always been the case that even if you don't like it, and I think that's one of the difficulties in Parliament's positions, they say we want to prevent a no deal, we don't want a no deal. But that's not how you have, that's a negative that they don't want something. It means that they have to choose something else instead. And that situation, that absence of enthusiasm for any of the alternatives, mean that it remains a live prospect. Also, there's a lot of moving parts in all of this. And I think a lot of people are making on-the-fly calculations and assumptions about what other people are going to do. And you have to assume, just law of averages says somebody's going to make a mistake somewhere, which means even if it's not the intentional outcome, it might well be the accidental outcome but we might just run out of it might be the cock-up outcome Uh, that's the thing like you know so we're putting a lot of faith in parliament to express this you know the fact that there is no majority in favor of no deal but as simon says there's so much procedure there are going to be so many shenanigans um involved in this so many amendments yes exactly so i i agree that i think it's the least the least likely outcome but it is perfectly possible and it could be as a result of a cock-up Okay, Jennifer, would the EU sort of cavalry come riding to the rescue in that case, do you think? Well, I think the EU cavalry would hope to ride to their own rescue and, and sort <laughs> yes. things out for their own for their own benefit. Yeah. But not to not to offer some magical last minute uh, deal to the UK. I don't think that would be on on the cards. People here are worrying about no deal. They do see it as a serious option. But although I think there's a there's a sense as well that no deal preparations are a bit of a tactic as well to to try and get the UK sort to, up, to up, finally up the sign off the yeah, withdrawal yeah. agreement. Okay, well, it's going to be a fun few weeks, I think, week is all we can really safely predict. Fun um, and scary, <laughs> I think, John, as well. <laughs> that is it, I'm afraid, for this time. Uh, my thanks to Simon Usherwood, Sonia Soda, Jennifer Rankin. We'll be back early next month with a fresh dose of Brexit horrors, no doubt. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast, at the Guardian. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Means. And thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.